Welcome to Artwell. I'm your host, Jacob Kelly, and today on the show, we are joined by Jack Bond. Jack is the only living director to have made a film with Salvador Dali. In 1965, they got together and made the documentary Dali in New York, which showcases Salvador Dali's life in New York City. And for a long time, this documentary was really hard to come by. It was lost for many years, and I was fortunate enough to get access to a copy of it to watch in advance of this interview. And it truly provides access and insight into Salvador Dali's life that you won't get anywhere else. And lucky enough for you, if you want to watch this documentary, is coming to Amazon Prime very soon. Depending on when you're listening to this, I will be updating the show notes of this episode with the link to the movie when it's out. So you can check the show notes, and I'll also be sharing it on Twitter as well when it's released. And similarly to the documentary, interviews with Jack Bond are few and far between. As far as I could tell, this is his first ever podcast appearance, and I could not be more excited to have him on this show. He's 86 years of age now, so obviously not every single little detail is going to be crystal clear in his mind. But he let me ask him any question and every question about the making of the documentary and about his life and career. And so without further ado, I'm very excited to present to you my interview with Jack Bond. There are no breaks in this business. You make your breaks. The reason I'm in this room right now is because my music's very dope. Let's try to find something that people remember 20 years later. If you just truly love cinema with enough passion, then you can't help but make a good movie. Break rules. Leave the world more interesting for your being here. Make good art. I'm curious what led to you deciding to want to film with Dolly. With him having this reputation of not making films with anyone, why did you decide that of all the people on the planet, you chose the one person who refused to make a film with anyone else? He would not. That's absolutely true. Um, when I first decided to make a film with Dolly, it was to be in Paris. He was in Paris, I was in Paris, we met, and we decided to make a film together. Of course, we set a date, and I arrived with a full crew, 35 millimeter film, equipment, the whole works. And I arrived in Paris with all the kit, but he wasn't there. So, <laughs> He wasn't even in the country, yet he'd agreed to make a film in Paris. So the next thing was, I thought, well, what do we do now? And then I spoke to the BBC, who were helping me a lot at that time. And they said, um, well, if he's not there, he said, we've heard that he's in New York. And so send the crew home, take who take the two girls that are in the film anyway with you, and we'll book your passage now to New York. So you go now to New York and you check into the St. Bridges Hotel, which apparently Dali has ordered for you. <laughs> so Dali was also, always seemed to be one step ahead. In what seems to be his own game. He, no one else knew the game he was playing, but he didn't. He was one step ahead in that game. It certainly was. Well, it certainly was. I admired him hugely, I have to tell you. So um, off we went to New York, and sure enough, he was there. And we checked into this lovely, it's a beautiful hotel, St. Bridges, really, and very expensive. We wouldn't expect anything else with him booking it, would you? <laughs> and so we arrived. And 
found Dali, who was full of enthusiasm, but made no reference at all to the fact that he'd simply changed country. Uh, he was in another part of the world completely. He didn't, that never came up. He never mentioned it. He <laughs> was a great guy. He really was. I often wondered if things threw him at all. I don't think they did, actually. Could he be caught off guard? I wonder. Or was he always on guard? I feel like he was always on guard. That's the, That's what I feel. Yep. I think that's absolutely right. I want to go back a little bit further to how you originally got to a place where he agreed to make a film with you. Because I believe you told, was it Hugh Weldon that you wanted to make a film and he said Dolly would never make a film with you, but you refused to take no for an answer and then you found a way to get in contact with Peter Moore. It wasn't that um, Dolly would never make a film with me. He wouldn't make it, according to our reading of it, he would. he just wasn't prepared to make a film, period. With anybody, so I thought, well, um, we'll change that. And he, it turned out, he really did want to make a film, kind of, in a limited way. And then we got there and found that yes, he was definitely on for it, and he was actually baffled that I didn't know he wasn't in Paris when I got there. Uh, never mind, it was all right. And I love Paris anyway, so nothing else. And so we met up in New York and began the game, which became the film. How do you prepare for making a film like that with someone like Dolly? You can't. It's best not to. All you need is the right equipment for any situation. I don't think there was anything that quite exists like Dolly in New York. <laughs> it was an amazing film. I think the whole thing was inevitable. The fact that the BBC forgot we were going to shoot it in Paris didn't matter. Nothing actually with it when Dolly was around, nothing mattered. And nothing was inevitable. Not, nothing was impossible. You did get that feeling. And he had a kind of joyous enthusiasm about him, for life in general, I thought. Others thought differently. But you, you think, you, all you can do is speak as you find. And I found he was wonderful, straightforward, good fun. Um, he could get up at it, or appear to be. He suddenly could get up at it, but over the silly things. Like cufflinks. <laughs> <laughs> Conflicts, yeah. So he, he, he was far too young to have been around. And do you know this film I shot at 20, 60, was well, 65? A long time ago. I never, in the rest of my life since filming with Dali, I never filmed with anybody quite as difficult as him. I mean, it, it, <laughs> It wasn't easy, put it that way. It just wasn't fucking easy. It was very difficult. But it, it was rewarding. And every time we shifted the gear a bit and started getting stuff coming in that we liked, then he felt, well, you really were blessed and lucky. Because, uh, yeah, it wasn't easy. 
what was the goal when when you touch down in New York, you finally meet up with Dali. What's your goal for this film? Is it to try to capture this brilliant madness that is Salvador Dali? Or what are you trying to capture with this documentary? Well, I was a very practical man. Firstly, I did whatever I did in my life. I did because I was earning my living. I made money. So that's very attractive. So you, here you are suddenly doing something you really, really like doing and what to do. And some God is prepared to pay you to do it. That seemed to me amazing. So, absolutely amazing. Donnie, of course, he loved money. Why did he love money and gold and stuff? At the end of the film, uh, shooting of the film, he did suggest that I went on with him to Spain. But you know, to take my crew on, I don't know. We we didn't go ahead with a second shoot. We stayed with the American shoot. But uh, yeah, it was an extraordinary, extraordinary guy because if you think about it, nothing was impossible for him. Nothing was impossible. And he did make a lot of money. I don't know what he did with it. I don't even think he knows what he did with it. I think Gala knew somewhat. I think Dolly doesn't necessarily know everything that was happening with the money. I think you're right. I think she was highly astute and had her eyes on everything and knew what was going on. And he played a game of subservience to that. I'm absolutely sure. She was the governor. How do you balance art and commercialism? This fixation on money, but also balancing art. How do those two things live in harmony? Well, I don't think they have to worry about it. It's all dependent on whether, you see, it's, it's far beyond. Somebody's got to want to buy this stuff. And you can't control that. You can't control members of the public who might or might not buy the stuff. They will or they won't, according to current taste, their own taste, and their own degree of excitement about how we are getting hold of this stuff. That's the thing. So, but she was, she was the governor. You you did you, you always did sense that. And sometimes I would sit next to her watching something happening, and you just knew she was quietly observing everything that happened, every gesture, anybody who came by, anybody who wanted to come by, because she didn't like people dropping in. I tell you. They just weren't welcomed. But I never, I never felt once. I don't think there ever was a moment where I was extremely pleased to be around Dali. And of course, it's lasted me for life. <laughs> Do you think you taught Dali anything? Yeah, I do. I think I did. I, I do actually think I taught him not to be fearful. I mean, of the world in the physical sense. Theoretically, he would have been fearful because people were always hanging around. You never know who it was. Um, there was violence in the world, and as just as there is now, it was always there. 
And I think he was nervous of that. Whereas I was born fearless, thanks to my mother. And and during you were also born during the war, or just before the war, which turned you into a fighter as well, as well right? It probably did. Um, I learned not to be fearful. Um, I was evacuated from London, where I was brought up, for, and it lasted for two weeks. And I protested and was sent straight back home again. And as I arrived home, a, a bomb hit the street in East Sheen, where I was born and looked after, and it hit the post office. And Eight women were killed. Did that put me off? No. All I wanted to do was go and see where the bomb had hit and find out who had been lost. Um, so I think I was born really unscarable. I can be psychically scared, but never fearful of <laughs> physical damage. Not likely. I'm sure this lack of fear probably helped you in filming with Dolly, with the chaos, with the unpredictability of it all. Quite probably. Yeah. Yeah. We weren't worried about disturbing or upsetting the hotel, the St. Regis. We ran that we ran that place like a big nursery, really. <laughs> and and they and they went along with it. And so if you display no fear, people pick up on it and like it. How long were you there for? Not quite. A bit longer than I should have been, I'm sure, because it wasn't cheap. <laughs> and at the time, yeah, no, it was, I wasn't footing the bill, as you can obviously gather. Yeah, the bill was picked up. But um, yeah, it's a, it's a funny thing. And I think this, I, I look at this weird world we're living in now and think, Christ, is not that disabled. I was around during the war, the, the bombing, and we were a group of fairly courageous children because we went around collecting unexploded bombs, running off to my mother's garage where we took them to pieces and learned to make them go off for a different con in a different way. And this caused mayhem. Look, these, these kids on the loose with bombs they managed to reconvene. That's absolutely marvelous. I do it. We, were, we loved it. We loved it. Everybody got hurt. We did blow up a big bridge. Kids aren't doing that anymore, that's for sure. <laughs> no, I don't do it anymore. Speaking of explosives, I heard you once describe Dali as a stick of dynamite. And there was that incident on set, we alluded to it earlier, where he stormed off because of an incident with Jane Arden, where she refused to let him call him a slave and he ended up storming off set. And you thought at that point, I believe, that the film might be over, that this might have been the end of the shoot, right? Yeah, it gave me an enormous problem. Because I was deeply involved on a personal level, Jane Arden. And so after he storms off set, I, I remember that 
you weren't entirely sure if the movie was going to continue and you called up Andy Warhol, right? And Andy Warhol wanted to make a film with you? Yes. Yes, he did. We were, we were very, very good friends. And what was what was Andy like? Great. Great. Wonderful. I know all his pals around. But Andy was a big supporter of a big supporter of yours in the US, right? Like he helped champion anti clock in the United States, right? He did. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I I left New York with regrets. I mean, uh, I, New York was New York and New York was my life. I'm not sure where the hell would I go to be. I mean, it was the perfect city. And I love New Yorkers. I still do. Yeah, there's just something special about New York. Yes. There it is. It's a city where you can get away with, so long as you don't do any harm. Never would. Other than a nutcase. Um... It's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful city with a hard goal. What's the craziest thing you and Dali got away with when you were in New York, if you can remember anything? I had to go to those ants. They were very expensive. And those are the ants in the egg that he breaks in the film? Yeah, that's right. They're ants. They came from a specialist crazy place that bred them. Speaking of wildlife or animals in your films... Is it true you lost a bear on set once? No, I did lose a bear. In Wales. You know, you've been to Wales? I haven't been to Wales, unfortunately. I've never made it over when I was in England. Oh, you should. Wales is wonderful. Now, we decided to have a bear in the film. But I didn't know where to get a bear from. And I ran very soon. Nobody had one. I rang the zoos. But then I remembered Harrods, the shop. Harrods is a grand shop which prides itself on their being able to supply virtually anything. So I rang Harrods and yes, they had a bear. And I bought it sight unseen over the phone and gave them an address to deliver it where I crewed up. Um, a, I'd taken an old pub, big pub, only one. It wasn't used anymore. So we opened it up, got hold of the lease on this place. And I had the bear to be delivered to this place. And the bear arrived in a big wooden crate with slats on either side and on the roof, a big strong box with a bear in it. They guaranteed it. And so we go peering in at this thing and I'd look at it. The claws would come out, you know, I thought, well, we can't just sit here. We're going to let this poor creature out, stuck in a cage, probably fed up, want something to eat or drink. So we undid the cage. And we were all gathered around, me and the entire crew. And it came out. And boy, did it come out. And it bit all of us. We were all attacked by this bear. So we, we got them all finally crammed into a couple of big vehicles I had, trucks, and then wondered what to do with them. So finally I found a disused pub and turned that into the new headquarters. And we, we let the bear 
just come out a bit, but it got us again. We're now we're now all being bitten by the bear. Finally, we got control of the bear, got it into the park, and uh, realized a lot of us had been bitten by it. So off to the hospital, I thought we had to go because you never know with bites of a bear. So we turned up in an ordinary provincial hospital. And uh, I explained to the matron, um, we have a problem. We have a problem. Every one of us that you can see has all been bitten. What, she said, by a dog or something? No, 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 a bear. Oh, yes, of course, she said. There are bears in the mountains of Wales, aren't there? Being very sarcastic because this beautiful countryside, there are no bears, of course. So, the bear, the beaming is sort of that problem. But it's one, just one of those things you run into when you're making probes and end up with a bear you don't know what to do with. Another issue you can run into making a film is losing a bus full of asylum patients. Isn't that right? Uh, yes, I'm afraid that's true. That's part of the same story, I think, because we, it was Wales and there was a mental asylum. And we the script did call for some rather disturbed people. Not violently disturbed, but disturbed. And so it was agreed the hospital would, would supply us with the patients. And I think we had 50 patients, and they were all delivered. And then the people that brought them promptly drove away. So I'm lumbered now with a lot of rather crazy, but delightfully crazy, I thought, the wonderful smiles, and they realized they were free. They were out of the asylum, and the, everything was changing. So I thought, well, well, all we've got to do is feed them, and I can calm the whole situation down. So we've got food. People were very pleased with that. And then we decided to hold a party for them. So we, I got another another disused pub, and music, and absolutely amazing. These marvelous people, we thought they were absolutely wonderful. But before long, they'd gone. Gardening is where they'd all disappeared and run off into the woods and the forests, and they were no longer my captives. <laughs> and, uh, slightly embarrassing. So the police were called to see if they could give a hand. And I must say they weren't much good at it. But so I said. We've got to get them all back. We've got to get them all back. But one is the one thing they need out there. What haven't they got? They haven't got food and drink. They're out in the wilds of Wales. The police don't know where they are and don't seem to think they would know how to deal with them. So we've just got to lay food and drink and we'll see if we can attract them back. But it took a very long time. It took, took about a week and a half to do this. But we got them all back. And Bateson congratulated me on getting them all back unhurt 
No, not one person had a misfortune or was cut or hurt or in any way damaged. And after a while, they were slowly repatriated into the care home they came from. But somehow we impressed the care home with improving the conditions and improving the property they had and then improving their rations. So we scored. <laughs> we scored. It was all right. It was these two incidents that led to you getting the reputation as, I believe it was, you were described as the most irresponsible man on God's earth. On the face of God's earth, I was. I think you were responsible. You got everybody back. I think that counts as responsible to me. Unharmed. Unharmed. We got him back. Yeah. And eventually, and they had a nicer life because of it. And, it, and they became famous. People wanted to see them. So people would come up and visit where they were in their new quarters. And which which film was that for? It's called The Other Side of the Underneath. And that was one you made with Jane, correct? That's one with Jane Arden. Yeah. And she's in Dolly in New York as well. And I feel as though well, it is your film. She's also the lifeblood of the picture, I feel. She really drives it forward. You documenting not only Dolly, but Dolly in Jane Arden's orbit or vice versa. I think it's part of the film is the clash between those two individuals. And I find that, I found that so interesting to watch, their dynamic. It is. It is. She was, of course, a strident feminist. She certainly was. How did you meet Jane? In London. She was married to a man called Philip Savile, who was a, a, a film director. So, and he and I knew each other slightly anyway. And, and I think they were on, they were in a mood to split up. And so Jane Arden joined me. And uh, then I made a film with Philip Savile where he made me the star, which was fun. Exit 19 was the name of the film, being Exit 19th Century. It was a, it was a good film. Yeah, it was good. Or Jane Arden, she, she came with me, lived with me for a while. She'd been with Philip Savile, who I thought was one of the best directors we ever had in England. She went to live in Scotland. I didn't know why. She didn't have, seem to have any links with Scotland. I couldn't work that out. Where eventually, she persuaded someone to go and buy her dangerous chemicals, and she killed us. There, there were some things that do pierce, and they never go. There, somewhere it's always with it. And that that's tragic. And I'm very sorry to hear that. Especially that that it, it doesn't to your point it does never truly go away. For for those people listening to this who hadn't heard of Jane Arden prior to now, what is what is her legacy? What do they need to know about Jane Arden? A great writer. She became a writer quite accidentally. There was a she wrote a, a, a script for a play. Took it to a, a leading agent. And he said, oh, well, I'll try and get this on for you. And probably you did nothing at all. But then it was left laying on the desk in reception, the script. And she went away and forgot about it. But along came 
a very famous actor, star, called Charles, he's one of our best-known theatre and cinema actors, Charles Lawton. Charles Lawton came in to see this agent he was using that agent, and he got fed up with waiting, and he noted, then he noticed his script by Jane Arden. So it was his turn to go and see the agent. Even though they were, they were big stars, they still queued. <laughs> so then he walked with this script, and he said, who wrote this? Jane, it says Jane Arden. Who, who the fuck is Jane Arden? Well, she's a writer. Well, I can see she's a fucking writer, but I, I, I want to play the lead in this. I love it. <laughs> and that led Jane Arden, who had no money at all, to being, becoming a wealthy writer. But somewhere, something had bitten her that never actually went away. And she did finally commit suicide some years later. But, and you worked with her on multiple projects, right? It wasn't just Dolly in New York? Separation, Anticlock, I directed them. And these films you made with her came after Dolly in New York, right? Yeah. What did making Dolly in New York teach you as a filmmaker? Whoa. Be prepared for anything. Say no, never. Never say no to anything. Just say yes and do it. And you will not go far wrong. At least you'll have made what you wanted. And what did you learn from Dali himself? What did Dali teach you? Dali taught me, let me think, did Dali teach me anything? Yeah. Dali taught me anything goes. If you want it, get it. If you want to do it, do it. And there's no reason or excuse for not doing it. I think he taught me that everything is possible. I did I did acquire I suppose his taste for money a bit. <laughs> I I do enjoy I did enjoy because money was coming so easily. I did enjoy it. Having it spending. And did Dali influence your work as well? Would you describe your future films as more surrealistic? Like were those influenced by Dali in some some sense? I think he most certainly did influence. Yeah. How would you describe your creative process when making a documentary? Well, I never liked the term documentary. They were just all films. And again, I guess you, you mentioned how you don't like the, the word documentary itself because you were always opposed to the the norms of documentary filmmaking. You didn't want a bunch of people sitting down doing talking head interviews, cut between footage. You liked to capture things in the real, from what I could tell. Absolutely. No matter what. Get it for real. And why is that? <laughs> why is that? Why is that? Get it for real. What else you got? That's the truest reward in life. I think is to shoot something that matters, and if if you if you can do that, you've got all that can be expected. I'm born in December 1937, and I'm still wanting to make a new picture now. You want you're working on one now. Or you want to make one now. I've I've got a subject, and I I want I'm I'm going to try and make it. Yeah. Are you able to share what that is? If it's too early in the process, you don't have to share anything. Well, it's not too early in the process. The one I want to make is one I wrote 
with a pal called Early One Morning. It's set in World War II. And it's a, one of the most extraordinary um, tales. Yeah, I do like, I'm interested in exploring war. Why, how on earth do we get in these muscles? And we're, we're bloody going all over the place right now as, as we speak. They're at it, but they have no reason to be at it. Not one valid reason to be at it on any side. I don't care who they are. There is no reason on God's earth to be at it. And yet they are. And it's for real. That is terrible. You've you've made a film about the war before, I believe. The Pity of War was a, a film you made. I heard that, I heard you I, I read in an, an old interview at one point that you said that is one of the best things you've ever made. I think it was. I got a lot of people helping me on that. Mind you, I can never complain about not being helped. A film is never made by just one person. No, for God, no. I never shoot. I never hold the camera. I don't want to do that. I like, I, yes, I direct and produce, but I never actually wanted to run the camera, hold the camera. While I thought I wouldn't be very good at it, but I, probably I would have been. But I didn't want to do it. I just wanted to watch cause it to happen, and then watch it unfold, guide it. And so that was your role when filming Dolly in New York as well? You weren't holding the camera? You were trying to direct as best you could Salvador Dolly? I didn't shoot. Even on Dolly, I didn't shoot. I didn't actually run the camera. I never wanted to do that. There were guys who could do it so much better than me. <laughs> Why would I take it away? You know? And I admire that, that ability to admit that there's other people who can do that better than you. It's like removing the ego from the situation to make the film itself better. Yeah. And what in your eyes makes a compelling film or a compelling story? Well, I suppose it has to be something that could have either helped you or harmed you. Direct influence, you know, either you're going to get hurt by it or you're going to benefit from it. And what's tragic at the moment there's nothing much going on that isn't sheer disaster for both sides. Children suffering and disaster, all of them. Why? It's the question I'd like to say. Why is this possible? How can it happen? When on any given day in another era in these people's lives, you know, we say, hello, how's things? You're right. Yeah, wonderful. You know, it's such, such a short distance between horror and being wonderful. This film about World War II you want to make, is it a way of exploring this question and exploring this horror, but in the past? Yeah. Why? I mean, you can be in tears if you've read the newspapers every day. You can see at the moment. Christ, I'm like, what? Why? No, not one person in either field or any of the fields could give you a truthful answer to why. 
Why? For fuck's sake. It's unbelievable. It really is. Jumping back to Dolly a little bit here before we wrap up, if that's okay with you. Yes, sir. What was your read on Salvador Dolly the person? You know, was he putting on a character? Was he wearing a mask when he was in public? Or was Salvador Dolly who he was in the film? I think he was. I really think he was. He did, of course, have a strong sense of fit. But that's all right. You need to be a show-off and to know how to handle the theatrical aspects of what you're trying to do or give to other people to do or for them to buy and sell. But, yeah, that's about it. That's right, though. I spoke with Nicolas Descharnes, who was a uh, Dali expert, Robert Descharnes' son. Um, and oh, really? Yeah. Really? yeah. Son, yeah. Yeah. And we actually spoke about this very thing where Dolly was very theatrical, but he did it as a way to get your attention so he could teach you an important lesson. He was theatrical with a purpose, is what we kind of discussed in that interview. That, that, that is beyond, yeah, because it takes him beyond where he was. Did Dolly, is there anything Dolly said to you or did that you've thought about frequently since, not frequently, but is there something that stuck with you from the making of that documentary about Dolly? Well, I know one thing. It's not something he said, but he embodied. Nothing's impossible. Nothing. When Dali decided to make a film with me, with no, with no controls on it, you know, I could do what I wanted. But apparently, he agreed to let me have all this freedom to make a film with me because he had noticed that I was not particularly intelligent. That is the truth. That is God's truth. He really did say that. I decided to work with you because I noticed you were not particularly intelligent. If I ever have a tombstone, I want that on it. You don't want the most irresponsible man on God's earth, on the face of God's earth? That is a good one. Or there's another one about the work of a drug-crazed misfit. That was for separation. In a, in a review, somebody had written, definitely the work of a drug-crazed misfit. You certainly have a knack for finding these really interesting reputations. Yeah. I think I, I'm, when I get going, I'm fearless. We have, to, we have to get it. So, Dali, we can't bring him back to life. No, nobody worked how to do that. Mary Rose here thinks that Dali in New York brings him back to life. I think so. I think so. I think you get to, your film puts you kind of in the shoes of what it would be like to spend time with him for however long you're with him. It feels like you're there with him through that film. You provided a perspective that is very rare, especially in the world of Salvador Dali. Like this film brings you in in a way nothing else does. And do you ever think about the fact that you were the person who got to make that, this incredibly important, important film about Dali, the only one on this earth that exists like that, and you're the one who made it? Do you ever think about that? No. I'm glad to hear it. It gives me pleasure to hear you say that, but I'd never thought like When you look back on your body of work, 
What's the feeling? How do you feel about everything that you've made up to this point? I wish I'd made some more. I think I could have made more films. It's not like the opportunities weren't there, but I was easily distracted. For example, as soon as I got quite a lot of money, I bought a big boat and went off on that. I was fascinated by very, very fast motorcycles and cars. And I'm glad to say I never banged up. Never once. Never got hurt, never hurt anybody else. Because if you're driving a car at 156, 160 miles an hour, the damage, if you can cock it up, is appalling to consider. But I used to do that. To me, though, even though you didn't necessarily make as many films as you might have wanted to, it sounds with the boats and the motorcycle and the cars, it sounds like a life well lived to me. I can't complain. And I've had wonderful friends and a wonderful love life. So That's amazing. Are you likely to come to England? At some point in, hopefully within the next year, I'd like to get back over. Yeah. Well, it'd be wonderful after this conversation, we're going to send you an address. We'll do that. And I would like very much to meet you again. Perhaps over here. I would love that. That'd be great. I want to thank you so much for the time. This has been an absolute pleasure. Maybe next time I speak with you, it'll be in person. What a pleasure it has been meeting you in this way. This has been a lot of fun. I really appreciate it. It was an absolute honor to get to speak with you about, about your career making the movie. This has been a lot of fun for me. And I remember this for a long time. Fantastic. Oh, this is the next time. Absolutely. Till next time. Do you drink? I can. Red wine? Sure. <laughs> Good. <laughs> we'll have a drink as well next time. Perfect. See you soon.